Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and we're doing something today that we've never done before, which is re-releasing an episode. And we're doing that because in these midterm elections in the United States, it is really important that we continue to consider the ways that all of the values that we talk about on the podcast impact American politics because American politics impact everywhere. And so in this season of voting and anxiety and all of that, that as a community, we are doing the work together and that voting is just one part of that. It is one part of loving our neighbor. It is one part of being civically engaged. And it's one part for me of honoring my ancestors. In this episode, recorded in 2020 before the presidential election, I talk with Nikki Toyamasito about the topic, what are Christian politics? This conversation is really important because many of us are shaped politically in the same places that we're shaped spiritually, and there's a lot of untangling to do. And Nikki does such an amazing job of that, so I wanted to give this episode back to the community as a point of sanity and affirmation of the work that we're all trying to do together and the ways that it gets all messed up. I do hope this episode with Nikki is helpful, is grounding, and helps you see a little bit of yourself and a little bit of God today. Thank you so much for being on. This is uh, a gift to me just to get to cross paths and have a conversation because I know we've been adjacent on the internet for a long time, but it's just a gift. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for inviting me, Brandy. It's really great to have this conversation with you. Of course. Um, So as we start, I always ask folks to describe for people who may not know who you are, what does it mean to be you? Well, my name is Nikki Toyamasito, and uh, I think there's a little bit of uh, what it means to be me in my last name. Um, uh, The Toyama part is the part that I brought into the family name. Um, I'm fourth generation Japanese American. The Sito side uh, is brought in by my husband, who's a Hong Kong Chinese Asian American from Southern California. A little bit of what it means to be me is I just, I feel a passion and a calling uh, to help communities of faith have a uh, lifelong engagement with justice issues. I think my, I just feel like that is sort of my guiding star for how I'm trying to show up in the world. And how did that happen for you? Can you give us just like a couple of landmarks? Because I know for a lot of, especially for uh, a lot of our Asian American listeners, I think it can feel like a strong gap between where folks are right now, especially as they navigate family experiences, politics, their own identity formation, and seeing older Asian American folks who are doing things. Can you help give a couple of landmarks for how you became who you are? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think there's a couple, like, if I sort of think of it as the collection of the things that sort of form my story, there's a couple of, like, pebbles that I would uh, pull out of that collection. Um, and one of one of those is um, this picture that I have of my great aunt. Her name is Yuri Kochiyama. And she is somebody who was working on the front lines of the racial justice movement during the 60s. If you see that historic picture of Malcolm X when he was shot, she's the Asian woman holding him right after that because she she did a lot of work uh, kind of shoulder to shoulder to him. That picture to me is important, the picture of Yuri Kochiyama, because I feel like I get so many messages from American society that sort of says like, oh, you know, justice work and ad- activism, that's not what Asian women do. And I just feel like I... It, there's this woman from my family, and that is who she was and how she sort of lived out kind of her wholeness. So I think that's one spot, one little stone that I, I keep to kind of remember. Another little stone that I keep to remember is I've had the privilege to have some experiences to walk alongside um, Christians who are living in uh, the garbage village in outside, just outside of Cairo, in some of the red light districts in Thailand and in Bangkok and in the Kibeta slum outside of Nairobi. And um, some of these folks have sort of shared with me their stories and the ways that they have experienced God. And so 
those relationships and those stories. It's another rock that I keep with with me. I was very, I think, shaped and formed, and I, I feel a sense of family and kinship with the folks that I have met. So I think that's another part of my journey are the people that I have met. And then I think the last stone in in this kind of collection, this little bag of things that I help or that I keep with me to kind of help me to remember, has to do with the fact that I am a, a, a college graduate who has access to the internet and can turn on a faucet with clean water. And I think um, just over a, a, a period of time just had just such a strong sense extraordinary grace that I was born into and the question that I felt prompted by is especially as I met uh, people in uh, the red light districts in Bangkok because they have faces that look just a lot like me and I saw my cousin's faces and my sister's face and the people that I met that I just had this real strong sense of if there was someone who had the privileges that I have and lived in another place and could do something would it I wish that they would opt in, that they would act. So I think these are a couple of the things. They're just mm-hmm. interactions mm-hmm. and stories that I've had over, you know, 20 years or more that I think have made an impression. And so I try yeah. to kind of keep those stories close to remind me of who I am. I love that. I love that invitation too. I hear like a, a subtextual invitation for others to remember and to even know in order to remember. And I see that as yes. a thread throughout scripture over and over again that yeah. That knowing helps us when we are fearful, that knowing helps us when we are unsure, that knowing helps us when we need, as you said, like a guiding star to help us to know yes. where we're going. Yes. And so I hear in your story this really beautiful intersection of this vocation of justice and then this legacy of folks who are in your life that have shaped what you do. So could you tell us yes. a little bit about the work that that does inform that you do? What's the, yeah, what's the work that you do in your day-to-day. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'm the um, executive director for Christians for Social Action. It's an organization that was founded in 1978 uh, by a guy named Ron Sider, who wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And uh, so our organization is a group of scholar activists who are um, just really uh, agitating for a, um, a more full picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, like in all the areas of our life, not just on Sundays. And we're also uh, agitating and yearning and dreaming about a more just society. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so that's kind of what it looks like in my day to day. I love that that in that way you are a professional agitator and you train and coach <laughs> other professional agitators to make the world look more like we think that God might intend. So I love that that is the. <laughs> I love that word. Um, it's it's good well, trouble. I, yeah. and it's holy mischief. <laughs> Totally. I think of it as like the sediment in a thing sort of settles to the bottom and then you take your spoon down deep and you yes. just stir it up again. You ask a couple of troublesome questions and it helps get all that goodness mixed up again. It's, you know, the danger of settling and just being left with dirty water, you know, or something. So. And you could call a lot of our situation for the topic of today even some dirty water. <laughs> <laughs> So with all of that, I'm really grateful to have you on and to help us to make sense of some of the stories and narratives that Christians tell ourselves as we engage with politics. Yeah. Well, Brandy, I have to say thank you, right? Like the two things that they say don't bring up in polite society is faith or religion and politics. So yeah, (laughs) let's do it. (laughs) And I think to that end, like a lot of us have maybe not engaged with a lot of conversations where people were talking about this stuff pretty explicitly and in a way that isn't just for single moments of elections. And right, this is, I don't mean to be ironic and to go like, yes, of course we're doing this around the election season, but I think that there is a 
broader invitation in this reclaiming of our theology from American politics that is yes. to give us a more lifelong type of discipleship that can handle and have the resilience to have like basic conversations totally. with each other. Yes, I think, yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. And I just think that, one, especially, right, we're two women of color having this conversation, which makes it even um, more distant for folks who are disconnected. And I think a lot of us enter this season or feel like we're living in the perpetual election season of the United States. It feels like we've been doing elections for five years now. (laughs) I just am a little exhausted by it. But I think for a lot of us, there are ways that we have been shaped and impacted by theological and social ideas that have really become a syncretism between our Christianity and our American political system. And so I think we just need some help and some language to make sense of that. And so as we start doing that, I think it'd be helpful if we could just be on the same page. I would love if you could help describe for us what, what are politics, what is politics, and what do you see as the call for Christians in the midst of that out of who you are? I think the call for Christians in the midst of politics is the same call and invitation to Christians in all areas of our life, right? Like, what does it mean to follow Jesus and to try to follow Jesus faithfully in every area, right? It's our, in the relationships we have, how it is that we're showing up and being a neighbor, how it is that we are in our family systems, all this kind of stuff. And so I feel like politics has somehow become a little bit taboo and a little bit private, but it's the exact same dynamics. Um, the other thing I feel, believe really strongly is that our, our Christian faith and our invitation from Jesus is both a personal one, and we see that in sort of like um, the renewal of who it is that we become through mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. And then it is also an invitation for a systemic engagement. Mm-hmm. And so that's where a little bit I see the politics coming up. Um, that, and, and I... You caught me a little bit off guard in my definition of politics. I've actually never had to <laughs> define it. Um, so I'm sure there's great sociologists who could um, give you a good answer for it. But a little, I guess part of how I think about it is, <laughs> is a phrase that I heard once. Wherever people are, there is politics. Mm. And I think it's something about the grouping of, the organizing of um, different groups of people to create rules and policy and and, and the things that sort of help a culture, a group, or a society run. We're talking about politics, but the other thing that's in the back of my head is I am thinking about the politics of, like, your neighborhood. Yes. The politics of the school PTA. You know, and how is yes. it that we're still showing up? You know, so to your point, this isn't just about a election. But it's how do we show up and be people yes. of justice and kindness and compassion in all those spaces? And then how do we use our power? Because you can't talk about politics without talking about power. Yes, yeah, one of the ways that I describe politics to that end is that politics is what happens when we institutionalize what happens to people's bodies. That we oh, interesting, yeah. That we create policies and practices in our schools, in our even in our homes. There's politics that dictate our homes and totally. how we engage in our families. Yep. And we all know, even if we couldn't name them explicitly, the political rules of our families and of our yes. of our neighborhoods and of our cities. But we tend to only give attention to it when it's this national thing, which is super important. But I think that there are ways that we may be more familiar with how politics are formed and play out than right. we might yes. think that they are. Yes. And one of the things that, and you've heard me say this before, but one of the things that I've been talking about lately is that to me, for religious people, it feels like politics in some ways should come should be downstream of religion. And one of the problems that we're having right now is that there is this syncretism between politics and faith that makes it so that we don't know where politics end and where faith begins. Yes. And so I would love for you to help us 
figure out and make sense of this current political moment that we're in, because it does feel unique to history in some ways. And in some ways, it, right, it's the same story told differently in a more extreme way. I had Reverend Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil on talking about Jimmy Carter and the ways that this looks really similar and that the as we see yeah. Jerry yeah. Falwell and Jerry Falwell Jr., that this is not a new story necessarily, but the extreme to which we have found ourselves in the midst of it and the extreme to which Christians are supporting all kinds of things right now. It's very complicated. And so can you help us to make sense of how do you see this political moment that we're in right now? And why do you think Christians find themselves in the places that they do in the midst of it? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that, that I think or that I've sort of been pondering is that in politics, there are not a lot of places where people have been able to talk about faith in a way that hasn't been super polarizing. Mm. And and so one of the things that I think I have found is that people will find another group of folks that that they agree with on something. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they just presume all uh, alignment on everything else. Mm. You know, so there it so isn't kind of a very critical. So so that if if somebody kind of talks about faith or spirituality in a certain kind of a way that they agree with, then if they don't have actually firm conclusions on the other stuff, they'll just sort of adopt. Um, because I like you on this, but you know, I'm not exactly sure. This I a little bit think is the Fox News phenomenon. Because mm. it's one of the few news stations that actually talks about faith in any sort of a way. Now, what I usually say is the Jesus that they talk about on Fox News is not a Jesus I recognize in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit interesting. Um, so I think there is something that, um, I think people are trying to find a group of people to which they sort of like, ah, yes, these, these are the people like me. These are, you know, we think alike, or we have the same values. And um, that there's a way that strong association on one thing just, I mean, I, I think a little bit too, what's behind the question is, I think there are a couple of, maybe if I could just talk about some of the Christian narratives yes. that are really associated with politics. would love that. And I think one of them is this identification of America with, with Israel. And I don't mean modern day Israel. What I mean is like the Israel of the Old Testament. And there's a way that God had a preciousness, had a special relationship, right? Um, the Israelites were God's set apart people. And there's a way that some of these Old Testament scriptures and images will get taken. And, and somehow then Americans feel a sense of chosenness, right? So some people call it American exceptionalism. So, so I think that's one of the main concerns that I have. Because I think what would be more faithful for us to say is this is what we know about God because of his relationship with Israel. Mm-hmm. But we cannot necessarily assume the same promises to Israel are the promises to America. Yes. So so what we can assume is, okay, that relationship that God had with Israel shows us something about God. Yes. We know that God is compassionate. We know that God is faithful. We know that, oh, there are certain things that sort of steam God up. And those are the things that we hold true. Yeah. But sometimes I think in the United States, we actually take the promises of that and we apply that to politics. And we use that as faith fuel to back up policies that are actually, I'm going to say, anti-Christian and anti-Jesus. Yes. So that's one thing that I'd say we should be a little bit critical or reflective on. Then the other thing, too, is that I believe that God is constant and faithful and reliable. But my ability to discern and understand God at any given time, I think is a little bit fallible. And so I think, I wish that Christian leaders in the U.S., had a little bit of a, um, I think when we come to conclusions related to faith, 
we feel like, like they have to be absolute conclusions. Otherwise, the reliability of God is at stake or the reliability yes. of the Bible is at stake. But actually, no, no, no. It's our reliability and that's okay. Yes. Right? God is always revealing. God is always, you know, doing God's thing. Yes. And um, so I think if we had a little bit of a different posture, then I, th- I see a way that uh, faith has become, I don't know, well, faith has become weaponized, or, but this mix that you were referring to of where does politics start, you know, where does our faith inform how we respond to politics and all that kind of stuff. I, ha- I have been very concerned about how basically political folks have gone, have identified, we can find a couple of issues, we can split off the religious or the faith vote on these issues to win our thing, and they have decided this is what Christians need to care about. And I just think Christians, you know, we have a different allegiance. We're ambassadors from a different place. We just have to be a, a little bit more self-reflective yes. before we buy into and become part of somebody else's battle that they're trying to fight. Yes. And, and I hear in some of that, one of my very strong experiences of being, well, I, I always say that I was politicized and spiritualized at the same time, that there was no, mm. that there was no disconnect mm-hmm. between those things. And I think those single issue issues were a huge part of that and it became a situation where to question one's politics as you're saying was to question one's piety their devotion to jesus and the natural result and overflow of that is then god needs to be defended and the bible needs to be defended and suddenly we're trying to create these deified politicians who then live as theocratic god actors When, Mm -hmm. if we look at how theocracy plays out, even in the scriptures, we don't have a great track record of it. I think of even like not super, right? (laughs) I think of even basics, like not even more. We don't even have to talk about kings. We can just talk about the judges and go like, Eli's sons are exploiting (laughs) people's offerings. We've got Samuel's sons who who pervert justice. We have Saul, who the people pick. It's the closest thing to a democracy or a democratic election that we have in the scriptures. And. That does not go well either. And even though you can say this person is God's man and go, but they're not doing God's thing. And Mm -hmm. to me, I think there's even this political reality where one can be deeply devoted to Jesus and very wrong about what God might do in the world. And I think you have this invitation toward a humility that says like, maybe we should be more reflective in how we consider that. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and I would say still go wholeheartedly after Jesus and then kind of go, but interrupt me, God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if I'm doing the wrong thing, like, let, you know, I hope I will hear it. <laughs> kind well, of yeah. Thing. And I think that the, the, a single issue ideology makes it so that we cannot do that because we've built so much on one single thing that to pull that out is to take out the foundation of everything that we've built it on. Absolutely. So I think the thing, the way that you know that it's a political actor who decided something is you hear the word single issue. Because within the Christian space, right, within following Jesus, it's following Jesus with your whole life, with your whole heart, with your whole mind, right? There's no, oh, with your single something, you know, and all the rest of it. Mm. So that's what I'm, I'm talking about. It's the intrusion of a political machine onto faith that has decided there's a couple of things we can use to split off folks. And that's where you get, so when I ever, that is always a flag for me when people say I'm a single issue voter, then I go, oh, you're a political voter first mm. versus a faith voter first. You know, and I think that people often use it as, no, I'm a faith voter first. I'm a single issue. You know, mm. I don't care about the rest of it. And here's the thing is our God is not a single issue God. 
Hmm. Right? Our God is a whole world kind of a God. Our God is not limited to pushing forward an agenda. That's a, that's a pragmatic and that's a kind of a pretty secular way of mm-hmm. looking at things. Our God dreams whole dreams, yes. dreams dreams for the flourishing of every single person. It doesn't have to be limited to, oh, God hopes that you do A-OK in one area of your life. And boy, you know, best of luck on that. Like that, I mean, to me, that is the intrusion of a secular mindset. So when I hear people say single issue, then I go, ah, I wish wish that we could become folks who have this generosity of God's, you know, the ability for God to hold all of these issues, all of these vulnerable peoples, all of these concerns. God can hold them all in tension. Yes. And one of the things that that comes to mind as I think about that is just that the that single issue politics lend us a very slippery, very steep slope to idolatry in really profound ways. Yeah. Because it says that God cares about the thing that I most care about, that I've interpreted that God most cares about. And God doesn't actually get to speak for God's self on what is the most important or how to hold that tension. It's just God looks like the thing I most care about. Therefore, God looks a lot like me. Right. And to me, yes. that is a dangerous place where now we have someone like Donald Trump who is being called by many people who call themselves followers of Jesus an image of God or an actor for God who looks nothing like the person of Jesus. But because yes. there's this single issue, I'll even say just around like pro-birth or uh, yeah, we'll call it we'll call it pro-birth or anti-abortion. Uh-huh. And I just don't think that we've thought those issues all the way through. That when we say we are pro-birth, pro-modern Israel, pro-traditional marriage, whatever things that evangelicals specifically, like white evangelicals specifically, have said that they're behind, I just don't know that we think those things all the way to the ground or what that would what what we would have to believe about God to believe that's true. Could you talk a little yeah. bit about some of that? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think. I think that there is, um, I mean, one of the other ones that I would toss in, there is religious liberty yes. in terms of kind of what people think about. And I mean, I think that one is sort of an easy one um, because I think that as a lot of folks are advocating some of the religious liberty stuff, there is a lot of question about, does that mean religious liberty for all faiths? Or does mm-hmm. that mean religious liberty to practice fully your faith in every place you want to be? Um, and that sort of thing. And I think I, I think that there is sort of a short-sightedness to some of these policy issues, the way that people are looking at them, that they don't realize, like, actually to take those to the full extent is actually going to take you to a conclusion that may then be incompatible with your faith. Mm. So, I mean, people look at, right, people talk about pragmatics in, in politics. It's like, oh, we're not a big fan of this person, but they get the job done. Mm-hmm. And I just think for Christians, we actually have to have a little bit of a different paradigm because... God does not need any of us to do anything. So we don't have to default to the pragmatism or the, hey, well, you know, this is the only way it's going to get it done. But because of God's invitation and God's great joy to have us participate, we are invited to join in Mm -hmm. on these things. So I think it means you both look at the fruit of a person's work and their policy record, but you also look at who it is and how it is that they show up as a person. Mm -hmm. Because, right... Um, the Bible tells us you can judge a, a tree by its fruit. Mm-hmm. And its fruit is not just the things that it does, but it's also the person that they are and how they interact. And others, and this is, I think, for for leaders, what is people's experience of your leadership? So mm-hmm. I think that's the same great a great thing for politicians. What is people's experience of that politician's leadership? That says a lot about who yes. it is and who they're becoming. Yeah. I, I think. 
think there's a way that I'm so surprised at how Christians who boast in an all-powerful God and an all-capable God are so quick to get pragmatic and to settle. So that's where I would sort of say Christians in politics, let's continue to press and be oriented to all of what Jesus thinks about and all yes. of what Jesus calls us to and let Jesus make the compromises as will be. Um, but it might mean that sometimes we'll agree with some groups and other times we're going to be quite at odds. And maybe that might be about right. Yes, and that that is not a new story. I even think about in in the time right in the time of the Gospels when we're thinking about King Herod. King Herod is this morally obtuse, looks a lot like Donald Trump in a lot of ways in the obsession with affluence, kind of the sexual misconduct, the rhetoric, the propaganda, the putting his own face on things to spread his his way but he built the temple he Hmm. rebuilds the temple and so there is even if there's not a strong allegiance to herod himself there is this pragmatism that says like well we have a temple now so we can we can worship freely and so i just think that there's ways that this is not a new phenomenon but one that jesus Mm -hmm. actually has a lot of familiarity with in this incarnation moment that he chooses to be in when he starts Mm -hmm. to challenge people like herod very indirectly, but saying like, what did you come to see? Like a reed shaking in the wind. This, my kingdom looks totally different than this. And he like calls out Herod indirectly. While John the baptizer, this follower of Jesus, yes. is out there getting murdered because he's speaking, mm. he's speaking truth to power. And it's not just about his policies, because I think it'd be very easy to truncate it and go like, well, John just came in political. But it's like, no, he came in both with the political and with the interpersonal of his mm. sexual misconduct. And Herod mm-hmm. disliked that so thoroughly that he eliminated his enemies, where yeah. we see Jesus like dying for his enemies. And so I think this idea of single issue pragmatism and all of that pretty much mm-hmm. always leads both in scripture and in reality to some sort of violence toward people who don't agree with that single issue or that yeah. political stance. And to yeah. me, anytime Christians see violence being the fruit of what we're doing, we have yes. to look at the cross of Jesus and go, hmm, maybe that's, that's right. actually not compatible with this story that Jesus is telling. That's right. Yes. I think, I think that's right. The other thing that I a little bit hear, and this is one thing, honestly, that I struggle with being someone who works a little bit in the political space, mm-hmm. politics being one of the systems that I'm trying to engage with, uh, other, other systems being there, but one of them is, to a certain extent, for Christians in politics, I think there is an element of being faithful and bearing witness to the character of God in the public space. And then... There is both a leaning into this thing that has not yet come about in believing and working towards it, and at the same time, a little bit of a humility of some of this work is going to be generation after generation. We have to be faithful to what our generation was supposed to do in this time. And it might be preparing the soil for something else, right? But we still have to be, you know, like, how do we still kind of press into the dream that God dreamed for, like, the fullness of all his people? I think the other check that I sort of heard in what it is that you said is who are we becoming in the midst of this? Mm -hmm. And who are we becoming as we're showing up in these conversations? And who are we becoming? uh, And I think that's one of the things that I, and for politicians directly, who are they becoming Mm -hmm. in the midst of this work? So I think that's one of the things that I feel very sad about is I think maybe the politics thing is actually showing us who we have always been beneath our polite facade. Yes. And yes. what I see is a little bit sad. Yes. So I don't think we have become anything more 
perhaps we're less embarrassed. And that seems like a, that to me is a natural overflow of when we relegate our discipleship to political, to the political sphere alone. Yes. That we assume that the truest or even a, a true mark of Christian witness is how one's political affiliation lies on particular things. Yes. Because I get a lot of like, oh, you are, you vote pro-choice. You can't be a Christian because you are, and then there's some propaganda statement like Uh participating in the greatest genocide of all time. You know, like, it's just Uh like, there's all these kind of things that make me like, I feel like what you have to do is to say someone else's discipleship is bad because they don't agree with me. Therefore, I can dehumanize them in some way. Right. And therefore do the thing I want to do and express the thing I want to express without holding any kind of nuance because Brandy's a baby killer. And I'm like, okay, well, (laughs) this is, this is our political reality is extremes and propagandas and misinformation and and all of that kind of thing. I saw a shirt recently at a bunch of the, at the bunch of these protests that were happening in Portland. The shirt said, Jesus is my Lord, but Trump is my president. And I was like, oh, I think that that actually names the thing that the dis- this disconnect and this cognitive dissonance that you're talking about where the who we're becoming mm-hmm. and who we believe God to be can be totally different as long as we see the political actor that we care about being God's man because it's like uh it's a means to an end Trump isn't perfect I have to I've heard Christians say I voted him with him with my with my nose plugged uh-huh. like yeah. oh I can't I can't yes. handle what he does but you know, he gets, he, like you said, this pragmatism that says he got the job done. Uh-huh. And to me, this reveals a particular discipleship issue that <laughs> I do not quote white guys very often, <laughs> nor white resources, and nor would I recommend this book, but it is helpful. In M. Scott Peck's uh, The Robust Traveled, uh-huh. he talks about the danger of choosing instant gratification. Interesting. The danger yeah. of choosing what is easy now to avoid pain now, but then that causes pain later. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of our discipleship is centered on conversion as a one-time thing. Salvation is a one-time thing that changes you completely really quickly. And then mm-hmm. your sanctification doesn't have to be anything that's ongoing or painful mm-hmm. or hard because you made the single decision. And mm-hmm. I think that we superimpose that onto our political actions and go, okay, if I make this one decision, I'm good. If I make this one decision, I'm holy. If I do this one decision, I'm with God. And it reflects our discipleship and the ways that we see transformation happening that don't look long-term, that don't look in any kind of ancestor kind of way, that don't look to be a good elder in any way. Yes, but rather allows us to choose the easy and quick thing that gives us a moral pass rather than the Mm -hmm. longer-term discipleship that says, we're figuring this out as we go, and that's what that is. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I think you're right. I really think that you're onto something there. I think the thing that I would add to that as well is we have this funny thing that's called the separation of church and state in the U.S., right? And I think it's meant so that there isn't a religious leader who is also the the government leader, and 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 so that there's freedom of religion, right? That's like an absolute tenet for the, free, the whole freedom of religion thing. But I think part of what it has also meant, and we also have a tax code that says certain organizations can say some things and other organizations can't say other things. And actually, I think it's a, a pretty good rule. Yeah. But part of what has happened is I also think we haven't heard a lot of talking uh, about how is it that our faith first informs how it is that we show up in a political space, mm-hmm. which is I, mean, I think what we're talking about. And and so that that's the other thing that pops out to me from that T-shirt is that it's someone who 
has totally separated their, well, maybe they haven't separated, but it, it feels to me like they have separated their faith and their politics. And I think we don't have a lot of great forums mm-hmm. for the wrestling of how it is that faith can inform how it is respond how it is respond in elections, for censuses, how we respond to public policy or global policy or economic policy, how we respond to PTA elections yes. and and zoning things and whether sidewalks go in or whether you know internet goes out to rural areas, you know all that kind of stuff. Because I feel like we have abdicated that space. And actually, we've abdicated that space to Fox News mm-hmm. and to other places where people think that they're getting, well, in c- certain areas where I drive around in the country, I turn on the radio station just to sort of like, what, what can I learn about the area? I love listening to like local commercials and stuff like that. And it's so interesting to me how many faith radio stations have programs that are meant to be talking about faith, but are actually talking about politics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it's... And it's all almost consistently conservative politics. I mean, one thing that I will say is progressives in the Democratic side has not created a lot of space to talk about faith Mm-mm. within um, their their things. So that dynamic has been hard. Yes. Of um, how do we have conversation? How do we learn about how other Christians are, I'm going to say, applying these things to our current context Yes. and, and trying to respond faithfully. So. Yes. And the challenge on the left for a lot of people of faith then becomes, oh, well, while uh, the religious right sees itself as being entirely moral, it seems as though the left doesn't have a, can't hold a message around a moral conscience in the opinion of a lot of Christians. And so it's pretty hard to convince people who believe that their, their side in this polarized environment is moral to come to this like immoral, godless side, because there just hasn't been simple space to have really good conversations about what it means to be a person of faith beyond saying in word that you are to kind of pacify the folks who would say that you're not, which we saw, mm-hmm. which we, right, we saw with, and this is not me saying anything about the validity of someone's faith. It's more saying like how I saw it play out politically, but with like Obama, right? Yeah. Obama said a lot of things about his faith in passive kind of God bless America as a person of faith. And it, being, it feels like because of the way that the separation of church and state has not succeeded in political rhetoric, that one has to do that mm. in order to seem moral because of the position that we've put ourselves in. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's also really interesting because I think the use of the word moral, right? And that to me feels like a direct line to kind of um, a, a purity posture of a certain strand of Christianity, yes. And it's a, it's a very much about sin and about personal sin and not 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 a very um, in the context of a community, right? But it's and and the sin is usually defined very very narrowly. Like we don't very. we don't look at avarice and greed and and so as as much as sin as as what it is is who's sleeping with whom. Yep. Right. Yep. And and so the moral thing is very is a little bit narrow. But I think this is the thing that Christians do need to press into, particularly in the political realm, is the question of ethics. Yes. And, and it, because I think that there's a way that the moral, and it maybe it may not actually be in the word, but there's a sort of this implied as kind of like, what is it that you do in your home and with other mm-hmm. people? Like, right, that's sort of a, a realm of, but what we're really asking is about Christian ethics. Is it fair to create a system knowing that 30% of the people are going to fail mm-hmm. and, 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 
and possibly die. Like, is that ethical, right? Like, what is what does our our love for God say about how we res- should respond when that's the kind of let's say feeding program or that's the kind of housing security program that has been proposed? Is it ethical? Yep. So I wonder if that might be one of the ways that Christians can come into the conversation because both parties have ethics, mm-hmm. right? It's different ethics. Yes. So we have it's it's a, it's an interesting thing of how we've really personalized. Uh, what we think ethics is. And to me, that feels incredibly selfish how we've done that, because it says that my personal ethical code gets to dictate how the most marginalized experience the world that we live in. Yeah. And that if I myself feel like I'm doing it's why I can't handle a conscience voter. Because I, I could, like, to be frank, I could give a shit about your conscience if the marginalized are being disproportionately impacted by the violence that your apolitical action or uh-huh. your conscious voting is doing. I'm like, uh-huh. I understand that there is no perfect candidate, but uh-huh. there are less bad ones. <laughs> I understand that there is no perfect political action, but there are ones that do far less damage. Uh-huh. And I think what feels challenging for me in this political moment is that so much of what I'm seeing on the religious right is a fight for abstracted ideals, uh-huh. America, liberty, uh-huh. freedom, uh-huh. Uh-huh. when I'm like, but poor people are dying uh-huh. at disproportionate rates. Black and brown uh-huh. folks are dying because of COVID-19. Uh-huh. Yes. And those, the abstract idea and uh-huh. its execution on the ground are not the same. The intention yeah. does not matter more than the impact in this way. Yes. And so yes. I think a lot of the ethics break down when they become like pers- personal, conscience-based, apolitical nonsense. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, all in all, though, I think the thing I've really become very convicted of in the last few years, I think especially after having done a bit of a journey um, along the women's suffrage route, mm-hmm. is vote. Like, people, we should just vote. Like, just vote and participate. Participate in all the ways that you can. Yes. There are people in other countries who don't have that ability to participate, and there's folks who died so that we can. So anyways, I, I totally agree with you. And to the conscious voter, I say, you know what? Vote. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I just think like that ethics question has to be deeper for us because ethics don't ask the question of I, they ask the question of we. That's exactly right. And I think that we have to ask that question of we and the long-term question of what it means to be us together for Christians, beloved community, shalom-seeking people. Yeah, Because if we don't do that, what we end up is this, well, <laughs> again, it's a chicken and egg situation. What came first, personal piety, faithfulness to Jesus, or politics as we see them? But I think it's just all too mixed up now to say. Yeah. But I think one thing that could be helpful is I think that a lot of us were taught these kind of political leanings, right? I, I've Some of the ones that I've heard us name are apoliticism, single-issue politics, pragmatism, conscience voting... Um, we've missed crossing country a little bit, but that's just like, I think oh, you said that yeah. a little bit in the beginning around yeah, exceptionalism and seeing ourselves as God's people and therefore we can do violence to other people to the mm-hmm. sake, for the sake of political ends. Mm-hmm. So I would love if we could talk a little bit of Bible and what are the, how, how do these get formed? How have we ended up with these kind of handfuls of ideology? So one, one that I think about pretty often is I can't get over I don't, and I don't know why this is stuck so heavily in my head, but when Jeff Sessions, upon locking 
you know, advocating for kids to be locked in cages, said, quoted Romans 13, saying that we need to obey governing authorities. And that was to instill some kind of passivity and dormancy, I suppose, in how we were to engage with it. And so I, I think a lot about Romans 13 and how I was taught growing up that, you know, we need to not be political, but we also need to follow the government because we honor God in doing so, which to me just draws a really, there's a really short line between God and your government. And so I think that there's like, there's scriptures like that. So I'm wondering if there are scriptures that you have in mind or things that you think have shaped how we do this, because as we reclaim our theology, we have to unlearn the things that have shaped us yeah, and yeah. replace those with these paradigms of Jesus that I think we've been talking yeah, about. Absolutely. So, I mean, l- let me take that specific example with Jeff Sessions. I think he's using that passage, but the underlying assumption in all of that is that God chose this president. And so God is working God's way through this president. And so therefore we need to submit. So that's like, right, to pull folks in line, but it totally is based on it is God's anointed or this is God's actor through which. And and this is the thing that I think we need to to keep pressing on. And, and that's why I feel skeptical about these assertions of this because every election, everyone, you know, claims God's anointed has always won. And, yeah. and I think there's almost as many people on the other side as well. I mean, you know, it's like in a football game, which team does God want to win? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so, and honestly, like I really wrestled with it because I was in the 2016 election. I had a lot, I, some people I just very highly valued had come to such different conclusions with mm. equal conviction. And I was kind of like, but both of them can be right, can't be right. And I think part of it is actually, it's not about being right. Mm. Right? It's not about guessing out of God's magic ambiguity, you know, like I, we identified it. So therefore, you know, we, we protest or we align, we protest or align. So here's, I think the thing that it is always is being tethered to Jesus, right? It's always North Star is Jesus, mm-hmm. always. And all that other stuff is conditions. Sometimes God's working through it, sometimes God's not. But it's, I, so that that's where I feel like, when we abdicate and we don't discern, we don't discern in community and we don't have relationships with the broadness of God's family to help us inform, is this just me and my race and my gender speaking? Or is this mm-hmm. actually, you know, what, what is going on here? And, and that some of that is what helps us that and, and diving into scripture, that's, all, that's what helps us clarify and realign to our North yeah. Star. So I, I think that there's a way that that particular scripture, it's like, does God work through? Yes, sometimes. Does God sometimes institutionalize the things that reflect God's heart and priorities in laws? Yes, sometimes. And sometimes not. <laughs> you know, So that's one thing to think about. One of the models that I really appreciate is Nehemiah and how Nehemiah both worked locally and then also worked on policy that kind of helped mm-hmm. for the long-term flourishing. Yeah. And so I think that sort of when I think about how to participate, in something he had a far more repressive regime that he was working Mm -hmm. within Um, and so that affected some of what he did I also kind of find that helpful both being a person who has been disempowered and still trying to act and then a person who then has a tremendous amount of power and is also trying to be faithful and act are there other passages that you're thinking of like oh how do we yeah you know I've been thinking a lot about how when I was growing up I I did very little study about Jesus's relationship with religious leaders Oh, yeah. Um, It was a lot of stories about Jesus' healing, about salvation, about the cross, about the birth of Jesus. But it was very little 
there was very little conversation about who Jesus was actually talking to, because I think in the United States, we are inclined to believe that Jesus is saying everything to everybody all the time if it's positive and only bad things to the people who we see as out there. (laughs) And so... It's more convenient, though, if we do that. Are we not supposed to do that, Randy? It's so convenient. It's (laughs) It's just such lazy, lazy Bible and introspective work. I just... It's so lazy. But I've been thinking about when Jesus is giving the woes to the Pharisees at various Uh times. And he says, like, you're whitewashed tombs, you trample the poor. And he's basically reiterating, you could take any of the minor prophets, well, any of the prophets, really, but I think specifically of, like, Amos or Micah. Uh And he's basically taking their critiques and then pulling them into what is his modernity and saying, this is what y'all are doing. You're using your money in this way. You're engaging with people exploitatively in this way. And then at the end of his discourse, I believe it's in the Matthew one, he basically says, like, you say that if the prophets were with you now, you would believe them, you'd hear them, you wouldn't murder them, but like their mm-hmm. blood essentially cries out because you're killing prophets right now. You're mm-hmm. not on the right side of this. And I hear these echoes, I think, of if I was alive in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. I would have sided with MLK. And I'm like, you have a moment mm-hmm. right now to decide whether you're going to do that or not. And we're reliving mm-hmm. this history of like killing prophets. Mm-hmm. But it seems convenient to me that we ignore all those kinds of critiques of religious people explicitly because Jesus doesn't go very many times to the political actors of the day, he goes to religious leaders who have been co-opted by political mm-hmm. activity. Mm-hmm. And we seem to never see ourselves in that because we've already mm-hmm. made a baseline assumption that we're right and on the good side. And so That's what Jesus right. says to people that he's critiquing doesn't apply to us. And so I think That's that right. there has to be some humility that we gain or yeah. at least glean to go, oh, there's a higher chance that I am the person that Jesus is critiquing than the uh-huh. one that Jesus is advocating for right now, especially if we are Americans. Like, there's just yes. a strong chance that we are not on the right side of that and therefore need to be very sensitive to hearing the critique of Jesus to us from antiquity into modernity because it's probably much more likely that we'd be there. So I yes. think about passages like that pretty often. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I also, I guess I also think about how much we privilege Matthew's accounts of the gospel over Luke's accounts of the gospel. Mm-hmm. That, like, I never was really in a church Bible study where we intensively went through the book of Luke because if you go through the book of Luke and you actually study it, you can't just do the, like, Simone Biles gold medal gymnastics of, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, because no one knows what that means. And it's uh-huh. so easy to not have to take responsibility for the poor among you, for the people who experience violence, for yes. our own lack of meekness, our own lack of gentleness. You don't have to do that if it's all abstracted and just about, like, me coming to my own heart's conclusions. So I think that there's a way that even just the privileging of which gospels we use, like, we love mm-hmm. to give new Christians John when they first become Christian, because it's mm-hmm. abstraction. It's it's John's <laughs> sermons of what he recalls Jesus saying. And I'm not going to say it's not Bible. I'm just saying it makes sense that we would privilege, like, in order, probably, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, because we go from mm-hmm. the most critiques of our money, our sexual practices, our exploitation, our violence, our military in Luke. And mm-hmm. by the time you get to John, that's not what he's trying to do. And I think we really like that in the U.S. So I just think that even that kind of privileging feels real. That's great. But I also appreciate that you kind of brought into, because I, I do think this is really central in Luke Acts, is the critique and the engagement with the economic systems. Yes. You know, And I think in the U.S. context, race, politics, and economics are all mm-hmm. intertwined. They're all so, so related. I, I just, I think there's an invitation there. Jesus is pretty clear about what it is that he thinks about wealth and mm-hmm. the overaccumulation of wealth. And, you know, here we are at one of the widest disparities in one of the richest countries. Like, 
if that's not sin, I don't know what it is. You know, so like that people would go hungry. I was just reading this um, essay in uh, the Washington Post. I'm based out of the D.C. metro area. And it was talking about um, this community that lives in the motels just down the road from, in Orlando, just down the road from kind of where all those uh, vacation, you know, Disney World and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's pretty shocking how, how vulnerable and how much when we defund some of these things, you know, what, what that means for people's reality. Now, I think we can have a decent argument. Is it the government's responsibility or the people of God's responsibility to step in? But either way, it's our responsibility, <laughs> you know, yes, so like we're yes. supposed to participate, you know, whether it's we advocate for those programs to the government or, you know, like no. the church's true, I'm going to call it the true discipleship shows up in those moments. Yes. It doesn't show up when we've got smoke machines and worship on huge speakers. Mm-hmm. Like actually those are the moments, you know, when we are yeah. walking alongside the most, the most vulnerable like that's where Jesus is hanging yeah. out, you know. So I don't know. I just think there's funny things we've we've gotten some of our Christian priorities a little bit mixed up. Yeah, and I just when you were talking about the economic implications in the start of that, it made me think about Amos and when he's talking about this group of people that he calls the cows of Bashan, which are this group of people who are drinking wine from bowls and asking their husbands to go out and practice exploitative labor practices to bring them back wealth and affluence. And somehow we don't see, well, one, I don't think we read the prophets for good, for, you know, not good reason, but for um, convenient reasons, as we've said. But there's this group of people who lives in excess. And then you can go to the Gospels and go, you know, we're not even asking questions like, is it ethical to have a savings account? Like, is it ethical to have wealth? Is it ethical to own land? Is it ethical to own land on stolen land? And I think if our conversations about yes. politics and our ethical conversations about politics do not start with economics, we will always land in the wrong place. And I think it's why Jesus spends, I think it's 25% of Jesus's parables talk about money and wealth explicitly. And if that's the case, then I do think we can probably go, well, a larger percentage of our conversations about our own personal wealth, communal wealth, and national wealth should probably inform how we consider those things. But we don't want to do that because there's the, all of these values in the U.S. that make it impossible to have that conversation like meritocracy, that I get what I earned. And it makes us unable as Christians to talk about privilege well, because we just see everything as this kind of word. I hate this word in how we use it. And I just I need to probably need to form a better theology of it. But I think Christians call that blessing. We say, I have what I have because I worked for it or because God blessed me or because God blessed me because I worked for it. And it gives us the theological, social, and political framework to demonize those who don't. I think it'd be super interesting to see a political platform that was really reflective of kind of the proportionate and the favoring that maybe a group of, you know, folks could sort of discern from the Bible. For example, right, like if 20% of the parables are about, well, like what if 20% Mm. of the platform was actually focused on on wealth on inequity but you know i have never heard a christian person sort of say you know what i'm not sure if that person's qualified because they are only rich you know and it's not like oh well they don't understand the data but it's like what did they have to do yeah you know i I, i'm not sure if that person has the the right character or, or is qualified or something like that you know those are not the kind of questions that i think if you if as you say faith 
was upstream from the political reality or the frames that we look at economic systems and all this kinds of stuff, I just think we would have a much more, uh, we'd have a different conversation. So I think I appreciate the way that you're sort of interrogating the theologies because I feel like as we shake things out, things might get realigned where our culture or our preferences have sort of bent it. It feels sad to me that fear seems like our primary framework because when we do have people who are saying like, hey, let's let's focus on economics more, what we call them is a socialist, a Marxist, a communist, words that no, we don't, we don't know. It's it's the it's Princess Bride. Like that that doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> like yeah, I don't think that means yeah. what you think it means. And I'm like, oh, I'm seeing so much of this ab- abstract boogeymanning of I'll call it abstract boogeymanning our way out of caring for the poor. That if we say that sharing money or resources is socialism, then I don't have to do anything with my money. If I say that it's communism, I don't have to worry about the exploitative practices that I use. And so again, it is a convenient political theology that says, I'm going to protect my money as blessing and not pay attention to any of the ways that one of the primary things that God judges in scripture is how nations, people, groups, and communities use their money and their resources. And so I do think that is a place where we have to start. And so as we get ready to close out a little bit, I'm curious if you can help us move toward what is another way? I know we've talked about it in some ways, but there's clearly a disconnect between how many followers of Jesus experience politics, don't experience politics, choose in or choose out of it. What do you think is a Christian ethic of politics to lean into? I'll, I'll tell you what's my very personal uh way that I lean into it. And this, I apply it to national politics, politics, but I also apply it to my neighborhood, you know, association or my PTA. Mm-hmm. I look around the room and I say, who's not here? I look around the room and I say, who, mm. who's not here, but should be here? Who are the invisible people, the folks who are affected by this? Or who's in the room, but can't get to the mic? And then I basically take my lead from the best interests of that community. I will tell you, sometimes it is hard when that best interest is contrary to my best interest. Because all of this stuff is actually a long work. Yes. And I see immediate consequences to myself, to my kids, to what happens in our Mm -hmm. neighborhood, and this sort of thing. But it's, it's about believing that... Jesus meant what he said when he was sent when he was going to the edges mm-hmm. and centering folks and, and and sort of saying, you know, there's something there's the image of God that you hold. And without mm-hmm. you, my picture of God will be incomplete. Now, that that can be a tricky thing, but I will just say it's it's an orientation versus a formula. Yes. If that makes sense. Yes. So it's it's yes. not it's not about okay this is always the answer and here's your 10 steps for having the community speak for their own selves and then you take that and you act upon it. It's just an orientation. It's like I know what my interest yeah. is. I know that from my gut real, real fast. Yeah. And so it's just taking this posture who is not here, who needs to be here, who speaks a different language and so they can't participate. And then I I try to preference the one who is the most vulnerable or the or yes. the most direct recipient of violence. That's how yeah. I kind of try to orient so yeah yeah and I do a very similar thing and a lot of the unlearning I had to do around that was unlearning some of the 
in quotes, Christian values that I learned about who is human and who is not and who is made in the image of God and who is not. Because for me, as I look in my communities and I see trans black folks and native folks being mm -hmm. incredibly marginalized by all policy, people, groups, religious systems, etc. I was taught to dehumanize people out of their own experiences based on their identities instead of just asking yes. who is the most marginalized and what might yes. Jesus do for them, not to them. I think there yes. is a type of political action that says, what can we do to people so that yes. we can be safe and secure instead of asking the question that Jesus yes. asks, this non-paternalistic question that Jesus asks, which is, what do you want me to do for you? And yes. I think if that is our orientation, that is much more helpful. And I think that, that kind of flies in the face of some of the ways that a lot of us have learned theology, which is the systematic theology and a systematic politic that doesn't leave room for tension or nuance yeah. or personal cost. And so I yes. love that word of an orientation toward the most marginalized and then holding the tension in the in-between. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like I'm taking a lot of direction right now from young Gen Z queer folks of color because mm -hmm. I watch, I'm watching uh, the kind of explosion of mutual aid efforts that look to me mm. a lot like Jesus. And so one of the questions I've been asking is, when I look at the person, character, and mission of Jesus in the early church in like the first, let's, let's say in like the first five chapters of Acts, yeah. who do I see that's doing the closest work to that? And right now yes. it's 17 to yeah. 22 year old young queer folks of color. And I was like, okay, yeah. you all look far more like Jesus than the GOP right now. So what mm -hmm. you all say I'm going to listen to. It doesn't mean I'm going to just mm -hmm. fully agree or go blindly into whatever, but it does mean that your voice, because you look more like Jesus, gets to have more authority in my political leanings than people uh -huh. who look nothing like the person of Jesus that I see in scripture. Uh -huh. And so I think for me, uh -huh. I've had to learn a lot of humility to go like, y'all are intense and a decade younger <laughs> than me. And I don't know how to imagine this world that you're imagining. But I do know that the world you're imagining much looks much more like this Leviticus 25 picture of Jubilee. Yeah, that, like, that looks familiar. Yeah, I recognize I can, it. I can like I get like whiffs of the kingdom right from it. it. I can go, yes. oh, it's Leviticus 25. Yeah. It's Isaiah 61. It's it's yes. it's Luke 4. It's Acts 2. Uh -huh. It's Acts 4. It's Revelation. It. I can I can go. I can see the kingdom in that. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. my choice has has become. When I lay out the attributes of kings in the scriptures that are judged constantly for their politics, mm -hmm. and I look at Jesus, when I line up the political actors in the world, which one is just the closest? Or I saw this tweet that essentially said, like, you're not voting when there's no perfect candidate. You're not voting for the perfect thing. It's more like a bus stop where you're trying to get as close to where you want to be as you can. <laughs> so you don't just not get on the bus because then you don't get any closer to where you want to be. But you definitely don't want to get farther. So just go for the candidate that gets you closer to where you want to see it, to see us be as a community. So I'm asking the question, what is the better vision? What's the kingdom vision? Who's doing it? And which candidate right now gets us closer to where I want to be? <laughs> As, it, as, it, as you're talking about that, I'm totally picturing like, well, one bus stop like will drop you in the middle of the desert. And then the other bus stop will drop you on the other side of people eating yeah. wolves, you know, or something like that. It's like, so which stop is closer? It's like, which stop is closer? And also like, what hazard are you willing to take? Yes. And, and, it's so and how much do those hazards impact the most marginalized and the earth more? That's right, because if you have, you know, a wolf-proof suit, then maybe you're willing to take the yeah. one that's on the other side of the wolf. And then if, if you've got a little, you yes. know, airstream with a whole bunch of water on the back, then, and, and I, I like that. Oh, one, one thing about your, your um, talking about the social, socialists and the communists, 
I think the underlying assumption in both of those is it's the godless socialists, right? And it's the godless yes. communists. I mean, I feel like it's so interesting because that, that is, in the U.S. context, the main adjective, yes. right? Like, that's what it means, <laughs> is it means godlessness. Yeah. So um, I, I think it's all part of some of the caricature. Yeah. And it's all just birthed out of yeah. McCarthyism and the fear birthed out of like the seventies when official prayer and Bible passages were taken out of schools. Like it just it's just all so boring to me in some ways. <laughs> so I just feel like maybe the invitation is for us to do what you're saying, to have an orientation toward the most marginalized, an orientation toward the kingdom, and to ask more profound questions about what it looks like to not just choose what feels like the default based on a single issue thing or some assumption that America is so great, but rather to ask the most marginalized in which ways America is not great and to go, how can we move that needle a little bit more toward justice and toward kingdom? Because I think for me, at the end of the day, that's all that we can do and have a long-term orientation to that, not a short-term instant gratification right. kind of context. May it be so. May it be so, Brandy. Well, Nikki, is there anything that you want to plug as we close out? Anything that's coming up for you? Yeah, well, thanks for that. Um, I think I'd love to invite folks to check us out. Uh, our organization's called Christians for Social Action. You can find us at christiansforsocialaction.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Um, we're a community of scholar activists. They're trying to stir the imagination uh, for what a more full Christian faithfulness looks like and a more just society. And so if that sounds like you, um, come check out some of the resources that we have, but um, some great articles, uh, some great ways to put uh, your Christian faith in action if you're not quite sure where to get started or if you've been on the justice journey for a pretty long time and uh, looking for resources to to um, continue going or to go to the next level. Um, but that would be a great place to start, Christians for Social Action. Yeah, I think that the spaces that you are creating are really helpful and create spaces of healthy challenge in a social, political, and Christian world of very unhelpful, very violent engagements with new ideas or things that we don't want to think about. And so thank you so much for being on and for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you've given people a wealth of things to consider in the next six weeks as we're trying to make sense of what I think might inevitably be the second term of Donald J. Trump. And so just helpful to have some ethics and some orientations and some understanding to approach that conversation with. <laughs>